Welcome back to the All Swell podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from the other half of our team. It's always great to know the people behind the podcast. Yeah, uh, today we're excited to have our first guests. If you joined us for episode one, you were introduced to interdisciplinary research or the way of conducting research without the firm borders of a home discipline, such as like biology or economics. In case you missed it and are curious what we were talking about, please go back and listen to the first episode of the All Swell podcast. It is available wherever you are listening to us right now. Yeah, this week we wanted to introduce another term that might need some explanation, but it has received considerable interest, and that is Local Ecological Knowledge, or LEK. <laughs> oh, another acronym. So LEK is the scientific lingo to discuss the knowledge that locals have by being a part of their environment. Since people have been a part of their ecosystems, in some cases for generations, they have a very close understanding of how the earth system around them works. A special case of local ecological knowledge is traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous knowledge, in which case the understanding, skills and knowledge have been passed on from generation to generation in societies that had still have had or still have a very close connection to nature and their surroundings. And in the past, scientific knowledge has been viewed as distinct from local or indigenous knowledge. Because these two different forms um, of trying to understand the world have very <laughs> different forms of finding the truth. Scientific knowledge has historically been seen as the ultimate way to find the truth in some objective ways or more simply by applying physical or mathematical concepts. Yeah, science as a profession, um, or as we know it today, has not really been around that long. Modern science started to form in the 17th century with the birth of the scientific method. For a long time, this scientific method was the holy grail of any science. Want to give us a refresher on the scientific method? Of course! It is not one specific method, but rather the approach of predictably categorizing a phenomenon and if the phenomenon is a process, modeling it mathematically. So, in essence, trying to quantify the world as much as possible. As a stark difference to this, there are other forms of knowledge generations. For example, myths, rituals, and tradition. That is, that is why these forms have not been accepted as actual science, and only in the recent years gained more attention as we are learning more about our planet and how people have interacted with the natural system. Especially regarding climate change, scientists have only recently started to acknowledge local and indigenous knowledge. However, this in this re relatively short period, it has become evident that those knowledge forms are very important and need to be considered when trying to understand how the local and global processes work. Local and indigenous knowledge have been considered in the last reports on climate change um, put out by the IPCC and also like not just the very latest one, but even the previous ones. But do you want to go into more detail here about what is local or indigenous knowledge? Yes, of course. Um, it is probably easiest to explain this with an example. So as some of our listeners maybe remember from episode one, I'm not American and you can probably hear that. Um, <laughs> I have been born and raised in Switzerland. So for you that have never been to that side of the world, Switzerland is uh, known for its chocolate, its watches and its natural beauty. 
So um, there's the huge mountainous regions, the Alps. The Alps have one big problem, glaciers and permafrost, that is ground that is frozen all year round, are melting because of warmer temperatures. People living in the mountains have been able to track the shrinkage of gla glaciers for generations much longer than any scientific expedition could have done. Because the ground becomes less stable, shepherds and mountaineers have come up with different routes not to fall to their death. And so all this knowledge would have not been considered valuable for science in the past. However, as we learn about the many ways in which knowledge is generated, observations like these become very important. But there is not only local knowledge involving studies of glacier and climate change, local knowledge is also being consulted in fisheries management. Local and indigenous fishers know their waters best. They are the ones to notice shifts, whether it's in the species or abundance of certain species or timing of different periods, for example, when spawning occurs during the year. I think one of the most identifiable aspects of North Carolina is the fishing industry. Our fisheries are so important and on the coast it plays such a huge part of so many identities. And fishers that go out almost every day or every season, depending on the fish, have a really good understanding of that local environment. So yeah, that was our quite long intro into today's episode. We have the awesome opportunity to talk to two of our colleagues who are involved in North Carolina fisheries research. First, we are going to speak with Samantha Farquhar, a PhD student in the Integrated Coastal Studies program at East Carolina and a member of the Coastal Society. She's involved in several research efforts on the coast, but we want to specifically talk about her study of North Carolina shrimpers and climate change. And second, Kira sat down with Andrew McMains, a student in the interdisciplinary doctoral program in biology, biomedicine, and chemistry at ECU, a real fish head studying estuaries and inlets on the outer banks using different sound techniques. Hi everyone, and welcome to the part of the All Is Full podcast where we sit down with one of our guests. This week we are joined by Sam Farquhar, and we are sitting in the main campus in Greenville, North Carolina. How are you doing today, Sam? Yeah, doing well. Thanks, Gigi. So how did you end up at ECU and into our PhD program? Uh, yeah, it's a f I'm very lucky, I'll, I'll say first, um, but it was very, uh, very just by chance. I I'm from North Carolina and, you know, I've heard about ECU my entire life, but I just never thought about going here just because Greenville seems so far from, from the coast. Uh, so I did my, my bachelor's in marine biology at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Um, and then after that, I ended up, you know, doing my master's at uh, University of Washington, Seattle. Um, got out of got out of North Carolina for a bit, so all the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, the opposite side of the country. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then I was in Madagascar working, and I came back to, to the United States right when COVID was happening. Um, and I wanted to get more work experience first before doing a PhD. I always knew I wanted to do one just because I love research. I love trying to figure things out. Um, but academia was oddly kind of safe just because the, you know, the funding for PhD positions is either it's in the bank already or it's not. And so I happened to find um, ECU again. And by this time, they had their new integrated coastal sciences program, and which was crazy because it was everything that I had been interested in with social sciences and thinking about uh, how social issues pertain to like more environmental issues, not, you know, very interdisciplinary. So I was super stoked about it. 
Awesome. Um, who do you work for here at the university, and what are you researching at the moment? Um, I feel like everyone is my boss, but <laughs> my true boss is Dr. Nadine Heck. Um, she works on social ecological systems, and right now we are studying um, some of the systems in North Carolina, mainly uh, the shrimp fishery. So we're working with North Carolina shrimping communities. Um, so I get to go out and drive around middle nowhere, North Carolina, try to find some shrimpers, talk to them about what they think is going on uh, in the shrimp fishery, especially in terms of like weather and changes and what affects uh, shrimp movements and things like that, um, just to try to get a better sense of the entire system. Nice. And how do you think your presence has been received within the fisher um, community? Yeah, it's kind of mixed. Um, I mean, like shrimpers, they're busy, right? They're always out in the water. So just catching them at the right time is hard, right? But if you can, and you can like sit down and like talk to them, like usually it goes over well. Like fishermen love talking about the weather. Um, so that's never really been an issue. It's just finding them and then, of course, taking their time when they have other things to do. So it's really just about luck and being able to like talk to somebody and connect with them in the moment. Um, and of course, you know, you have to build up that relationship and that trust with the community, and that takes time. And of course, um, in this pandemic kind of period, it's been really hard to to build trust and build relationships, especially just like, uh, you know, there's, you want to get close to somebody, but you can't, or you want to like just talk to somebody or, you know, crack a joke or something, but you like, you can't <laughs> even like take off your masks or anything. To, like, yeah, it's definitely an connection. interesting time to be doing all of those Things. And I really like that you brought up about building this community of, you know, of trust, especially out there in eastern North Carolina when there has been distance kind of between like the academic institutions, sometimes like the state agency, and then the local people that live out there 24 mm-hmm. 7. Because a lot of times, I mean, people kind of think Outer Banks or like the eastern part of North Carolina as vacation rentals or transient communities mm-hmm. of people. Uh, so when when you were going and talking to these fishermen, were you recording formal interviews? Uh, were you doing focus groups or were you do um, collecting data some other way such as surveys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my preference is to like go out and do formal interviews, but that takes time and you you really have to, you know, it can take an hour to do a proper interview. Um, and the fishers, they don't have time for that. Or, you know, you really need to set up an advance and that can be difficult if you don't have the, the reputation or, you know, the rapport with a community yet. Um, so I would go out and just talk to people just very informally. But then I'd always leave a stack of surveys at a fish house because that's where, you know, the kind of the interception point where you can find a lot of these shrimpers. And the survey, um, you know, I had questions about, like, you know, what do you think is driving, you know, changes in shrimp abundance and just questions about wind, weather, pollution, that type of thing. And I, you know, it was all optional too. So then the shrimpers, if they wanted to, they could uh, mail it back to CSI, the Coastal Studies Institute. And if I received their survey, then I would give them $20 for their time and their knowledge because it is important that you compensate somebody when you do take that from somebody. Awesome. That's that's very nice that y'all are giving back to them for their time. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's nice, uh, but... <laughs> A lot of paperwork, but it's yeah. it's no <laughs> always, always, yeah. always paperwork. Could you go into more detail and explain to our listeners what a fish house is? Yeah, I mean, so in North Carolina, you know, you have your, your commercial boats, and that could be for shrimp, it could be for tuna, or, you know, anything really. 
Um, and they go out and they, you know, they catch all the fish and then they have to bring their fish somewhere. And so typically this is a fish house, which is just a processing center where the fish gets sorted, graded, put on ice, and then the fish house will then, um, it's kind of like the middleman where they'll sell it to either restaurants or um, sometimes for retail or to local markets and that type of thing. Um, but yeah, usually you can find a fish house because there's lots of ice and uh, <laughs> usually they're right on the water and there's lots of boats going in and out. Well, both of us being Wilmington people, mm-hmm. you know, I spent a lot of time working at the fish house restaurant, right. you know, down, down by Wrightsville Beach. So now that makes sense why the restaurant was named Fish House. I had never thought of that mm-hmm. before, but that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, shout out to Fish, fish House because they have some good sandwiches. Did you ever go there? Yeah, for sure. I'm friends with waitress there. So. Yeah, I think everybody did. At their time, one point or another, that's what you did um, in Wilmington. So you mentioned that they would write down certain aspects, and you said that they had a spot to put down kind of the pollution that mm-hmm. they were seeing. Have you seen um, any standouts in that section of the survey yet? Um, some. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we need to get a, a large sample size because right now we have a handful of surveys and we're collecting more. Um, but it's really hard to get consensus on a topic until you have a really big sample size and you're like, okay, like this is the general trend. Um, so there's definitely lots of different opinions. Generally speaking, shrimpers are worried about pollution, especially because, uh, you know, we have a super large estuary that has fed by the Cape Fear, the Noose, and um, the Pamlico? Oh, sorry, the Tar River. Um, and on each one of those rivers, you have lots of agriculture, lots of hog farms, lots of all sorts of things. And so, you know, there's concern about fertilizer and runoff going into um, the river. And then, of course, coming into the sound um, in Georgia, they're having a big problem with this and it's causing black gill disease in the shrimp. Um, What's black gill disease? Black gill disease is little illness that <laughs> that shrimp get and uh, yeah it makes them it just unfortunately messes with their gills and it causes them to have increased mortality uh they die the shrimp die a lot easier um and they it affects the larval stages and all sorts of stuff oh wow um but so far in north carolina there hasn't been too much black gill disease but we're actively something that we're, we're on the lookout for just because um you know with warming waters combined with pollution it can it can kind of spur this on yeah, and have you noticed um, when you've interacted with the fishermen, have they discussed what they've perceived as environmental change? Is it something that they're open to talking about or, or want to tell you when you talk with them? Yeah, um, the shrimpers, they, they, they want to talk about this stuff. They, they've told me that it's hard for them to get a seat at the table because uh, the, the way that the North Carolina... Um, Marine Fisheries Commission has said, oh, sometimes like shrimpers are not the majority of um, the catch in North Carolina. So then they feel sometimes excluded and, you know, they raise concerns, but there's all these lobby systems in place like any other system. And so um, sometimes it, it frustrates them. So they do like that people are asking them for their opinion. It's just their, their biggest question is like, will this research, if they're giving me their time, will it actually lead to any changes? Um, and as a researcher, I sure hope so. But I, you know, I can only present the results to the right people um, and hope that it gets to where it needs to go. Um, and that's that's one thing about, you know, the difference between research and policy. And sometimes you can combine those, but sometimes it's it gets messy. Um, so right now I'm, I'm sticking to the, to the research and just trying to figure out what's going on first. Yeah. What is your primary research question? 
Um, for the shrimpers? Yes. I have lots of research questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> Want to share with us a couple? Yeah. So we're interested <laughs> on what what do fishers, shrimpers specifically, perceive to be the biggest environmental drivers of changes in the shrimp fishery? Um, and so, yeah, a lot of them talk about the temperature and the precipitation that affects different shrimp stocks. But then we're learning all sorts of other cool things that environmental data doesn't necessarily um, pick up. One of the most interesting things that we are investigating is a lot of the shrimpers have said, um, you know, because of the way our inlets are, it's sometimes really, really hard for the shrimpers to come drop off their fish at the fish house because mm -hmm. all the fish houses are um, on the inside part of the outer banks, like in the estuary. And for them, to, if they're out shrimping in the ocean, it's really hard for them to come in sometimes. So what they do is they go up to Virginia and they just drop off their shrimp there. Um, oh, wow. So does that, when they go up to Virginia and drop it off in like, say, Norfolk mm -hmm. region, does that then become like Virginia shrimp, technically? Yes, that's what they're saying. They're saying that North Carolina shrimp harvests aren't really that... Um, variable. It's just that some years we drop off shrimp in Virginia more than other years, depending on the inlet situation. So then if this is true, which, you know, we have to look into, that means that it's more of a management uh, reporting issue, not necessarily an environmental issue. Um, so that's something that's really interesting. And that's, there's no way we would get that data without actually going out and talking to people in the community because they spend their life on the water. Like you said earlier, they're out there all the time. They know the system better than anybody. Um, it's just, you have to like, you know, try to go talk to them about it and try to understand, you know, people who, who live on the water, what they perceive and how they, how they operate within that system. And sometimes that human component of a fishery system just doesn't get looked at. Yeah, I never thought about that before um, as like shrimpers would have to go out Oregon Inlet. And for those of you not fully aware with the Outer Banks, there's just one inlet for this whole one of the largest estuaries. And it is not, from what I've heard, the easiest inlet to boat in and out of. Uh, and so that is really interesting that those fishers would then just choose to go north um, especially depending on the weather of the day mm -hmm. and, and put them out in Virginia. Are they still catching the shrimp like off in North Carolina waters? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, they sometimes will go out of Ocracoke Inlet as well. Um, I don't, I don't even know if they could get under the, the Oregon Inlet bridge. I think they always go south out of, uh, Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so there's two different, um, like species of shrimp that are caught the most. You have your white shrimp and your brown shrimp. Um, and right, typically brown shrimp are caught in the estuary, um, and then white shrimp are offshore, both in North Carolina waters. Uh, but they're saying what they've been seeing recently is brown shrimp are kind of getting um, less abundant, and now there's more white shrimp showing up. But all the white shrimp, all the white shrimp are um, off the coast, and so then you know shrimpers are having to go um, offshore a little bit. So more more gas, mm -hmm. probably some more time. Yeah, and fuel costs are something that they, they talk about too. Yeah, that's that's a big component. Are both of those types of shrimp equally commercial, like the the oh what would I say for that? The money wise, monetary wise, they, they equal the same? Um, or? Some people like to say that brown shrimp tastes better. <laughs> I I mean, but when you go like majority of shrimp that you buy, especially in the like is in the restaurants in North Carolina, it's like fried, right? You don't really <laughs> you don't really know what it is. It's just like been fried and put in front of you. So uh 
if you go to like a pretty like a nice seafood restaurant, they'll tell you what's you know what it is, where it was, what type it is. And if you go to a market, like you know, they always label it brown shrimp or white shrimp. Um, but they're both very commercial, and they kind of get mixed up. So you've spent a lot of time working with these fishers. Is there anything that our listeners um, can do to support North Carolina fishers, or maybe their own local uh, fishers, depending on which coast they're on? Yeah, our, um, the North Carolina uh, like commercial fishing, um, all North Carolina commercial fishing, uh, whatever it is, like shrimp, tuna. They're part of a, a nice association, and they do a lot to keep supporting um, commercial fishing families and things like that. And uh, they have a really nice uh, magazine that comes out, uh, so you could subscribe subscribe to that if you wanted. And just um, yeah, just definitely you know request local seafood. Um, there are a lot of a lot of the restaurants here do try to buy local, um, like from commercial directly from the commercial guys and things like that. And so. There are definitely ways to support North Carolina commercial fishermen, and they do appreciate it because I know it is it's not the biggest industry in North Carolina, but it is very culturally important, and it, a lot of people really do um, like have a long history with it. And their you know their their father was a fisherman, like, and they have these crazy stories. If you talk to some of the older folks out in the Outer Banks, uh, they'll be like, "Yeah, I used to be so thick out here with with fish that you could walk on them," and then they're like, <laughs> like, "Oh my god, that's crazy." Um, so yeah, it is crazy to, to like if you go through and look at the history of fishing in the Outer Banks and shrimp. Like shrimp is just wild in itself. Before shrimp wasn't valuable at all, and it, the it was used actually for fertilizer in the agriculture industry what? in North Carolina. That's true. I, yeah. they did they feed yeah. that like to the pig? No, no, no they no, put it. They just it. yeah. So like fish meal. Whoa! I never knew this. Wow. And the, wow. I've looked through some of the kind of the historical archives and things like that, and. Like some of the first uh, record of people eating shrimp in North Carolina was actually in Wilmington. <laughs> and it was because like when they caught all these other fish, the shrimp were actually bycatch uh, in the other fisheries, not the other way around. And like they would, you know, either they take the shrimp and throw it in the as fertilizer on the on the farm uh, crops or whatever, or they would just fry it up and it'd be like a really cheap snack. And so it's it's funny how uh, preference and things that taste. This is the same with lobster up in uh, Maine and stuff. Lobster used to be a poor man's food, um, and, and now now it is. Yeah, <laughs> now it's like twenty dollars a lobster in a store if you can find that. That's right. Yeah, or is it twenty per pound? It's yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's uh it's pretty hefty. And now it's it's funny you say that about people. It started kind of in Wilmington when I worked at Fish House. We, we, I mean, shrimp was one of our most popular items and we did it fried or, you know, boiled, uh, blackened, mm-hmm. uh, and, and people would always ask ours, ours were not fresh. They were Gulf shrimp. Mm-hmm. Like I've worked in two different seafood restaurants now where it, the shrimp is from the Gulf. It's not even North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, you know, shrimp. And I, yeah, I agree with you. I think that is one of the best thing that our listeners probably could do is just Go, if they can afford it, go out and, and buy that local seafood, whether mm-hmm. it do be shrimp or, or mahi or some of the, and especially some of the fish at that's popular in season. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to ask at a restaurant too, because your, your waitress or waiter will probably not know, to yeah. be honest with you, <laughs> but then they will go ask the, the chef or the cook. Um, and hopefully they give you an honest answer, but just the fact that people are putting pressure on them and asking 
is a really good thing. Yeah, um, I, I agree yeah. with that. And I think, too, now that it's gotten so popular with oysters and, like, mm-hmm. where is this oyster from? Like, you know, what kind of environment was it in? I think the same thing might be shifting for seafood in general, uh, you know, kind of like how everybody loves Alaskan salmon. Mm-hmm. So and you always want to ask ask for that. Right. What has been the what has been kind of like the best moment for you in all of this research? Have you had like a favorite day or, you know, favorite moment from this experience? Yeah, I mean, I really feel like fulfilled with my research when I get to talk to community members and I like learn something new and then I, you know, they they feel like I'm doing something helpful. Uh, so I've gone out to the fish house out in Wachis a couple, couple times and um, got to hang out there and they have like really cool dog and just like just hang out and talk to them about the fish and not just shrimp but other things and just understanding there's all these other things going on. Right? It's not just, you know, shrimp harvest is um, might be decreasing. It's, oh, well, housing is increasing. You know, there, like you said earlier, like the Outer Banks is a very interesting place, like highly, like lots of vacationers coming in, people, more people from the outside coming in, buying houses full time, cost of living is going up. It's all these other things that are also putting pressure on it. So just understanding that, you know, fishing really is their life and they're having to use fishing to try to cope with all these other pressures is, it just makes it very real and it makes me feel very, uh, makes me feel like the work is very applied and hopefully, like I mentioned earlier, it will be helpful for, for these communities. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And thank you for being a, um, a TCS member and in our kind of crew. Um, where can our listeners find you for further questions? Um, I am, well, email is always good. <laughs> we will include that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I am working on getting on social media. I just haven't really made the leap. I think in the future I'll get a Twitter, maybe. I have LinkedIn, if people like that. Um, but email is probably your best bet. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, yeah. Sam. Thank you. And thank you to TCS for hosting. And thank you guys for, for double hosting. We're sitting in our office in the Coastal Studies Institute on the Outer Banks in North Carolina, and I'm joined by Andrew McMains, who is a PhD student in the biology program at East Carolina University and studying a lot of these ecosystems that we are in right now. Hi, Andrew. How did you end up in North Carolina and how did you end up at ECU? Yeah, so I, uh, I was born in North Carolina. Um, I grew up in Raleigh for my entire life. Um, I actually I wound up going to do my undergraduate degree out at the University of Montana, um, so pretty far away from North Carolina. Um, and I really enjoyed my time out there. I studied environmental science, and it was it was wonderful. Um, but I wound up really just missing North Carolina. The winters out there were way too cold for me, and I missed my family. Um, so I decided to move back to North Carolina, and uh, almost just happened my way into kind of uh, fisheries as a job. Um, I fished a lot as a kid. I've always been kind of interested in it just as a hobby. And uh, the Division of Marine Fisheries was looking to hire people um, as technicians. And I had a lot of boat driving experience. And uh, so they hired me as a temporary and my fisheries career has kind of developed from there over the past, I guess, five, five-ish years from there. Um, so yeah. And then as far as East Carolina University, um, kind of after working for DMF, which is the Division of Marine Fisheries uh, North Carolina, um, I got a job at UNC Institute of Marine Sciences in Moorhead City, uh, also in North Carolina, and 
There, I met a postdoc named Jim Morley, who was working on the same lab that I was. And uh, he wound up getting uh, finishing his postdoc and then getting a position as an assistant professor at East Carolina University. Um, and basically, in talking with him, I decided had decided in the past that I wanted to pursue a graduate degree. Um, and Jim offered me a position here doing a PhD with him. And so I accepted and I've been with ECU for about, a, I guess, three semesters now almost. So That sounds great. Um, so since you've been a lot out on the coast, what's your favorite spot on the coast of North Carolina? Yeah, so my favorite uh, place on the North Carolina coast is actually kind of close to where we are right now. It's Buxton uh, on the Outer Banks, which is uh, south of us by about an hour um, and it just holds a lot of memories for me. I've been going on fishing trips there with my dad and brother since I was about three years old. Um, so that's what, 20, 24 years now, 23 years. Um, so yeah, I've been going there most of my life and it's a really good place for fishing. And I just really, I've always enjoyed kind of the, I don't know, like the feeling you get when you're out there. Cause you're so far out into the Atlantic ocean. Um, it just really feels like the, I don't know like the town and the ocean are like kind of one thing together. They're like united almost. I don't know. It's just a really interesting feeling. I I really like being there. So That's a really nice picture. I think we can all have that in our minds. (laughs) And um, you already started to talk about your advisor. um, And so would you, again, trying to explain who you're working with and what the work is, uh, the research you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so I work with Dr. Jim Morley, um, and I think we are a self-described fisheries ecology lab, um, if you asked any of us. Um, And I would divide my research into two kind of main projects at this point. Um, The one project that I've completed, and then one project that I'm kind of working towards starting in the next few months, hopefully. Um, So the one project that I've completed um, was an acoustic tagging study of juvenile sheep's head. Um, and basically what an acoustic tag is, is this little thing, a little tag that looks like about half of a double A battery and you surgically implant it into a fish and it makes this, uh, really, uh, basically the, a sound that we can't hear with our ears, but we can pick up with an acoustic receiver, um, which is basically a, a device that kind of looks like this microphone we're talking into. You put it into the water and it detects these pings. Um, and every 45 seconds, the little tag inside the fish pings. We were able to triangulate the location of the fish using multiple receivers and figure out a location. And then over time, the tag lasts for several months. We get all of these movement tracks of this fish um, over that time period. So we tagged about 30 fish and we centered our experiment around an oyster lease, um, which is a pretty important uh, type of aquaculture that's uh, occurring in North Carolina and has been occurring more and more frequently in recent years. Um, So that's been pretty interesting data to look through. And my upcoming project is using a uh, high-frequency imaging sonar um, to sample um, inlets and try to assess their habitat value. And so essentially what we'll be doing there is using what's essentially a very expensive, very fancy fish finder, looking down into the water column and seeing what fish are moving through over different times of year. So uh, kind of exploring seasonality and trying to see what drivers, what's driving those fish to move either in the inlet, out of the inlet, are they, you know, foraging in the inlet, are they sitting there on the bottom, are they moving with the tides, are they fighting against the tides, kind of answering all those questions and really assessing 
what value and what habitat value that that inlet is providing and what usage patterns that we can really pull out of it. So that'll be a pretty cool project and that'll likely be several years of work. <laughs> that sounds great. And that's kind of what our PhDs are, right? Several years of our life. Quite a few. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess uh, we have, we've already started to talking about um, how that work would tie into North Carolina fisheries. So from the data that you're gathering and um, exploring the patterns of seasonality, how would that benefit um, fishermen in North Carolina and especially on the Outer Banks? Yeah, so a, a big thing, I mean, a, a big thing that Jim always pushes for our lab is producing, we call it like fisheries relevant research, right? Or management relative or relevant research, right? So you know, it's really important for us to, to be working on these projects that provide actual value to either managers or end users, which an end user would be like a fisherman or someone like that. Um, and obviously the managers would be someone like the Division of Marine Fisheries, people who are making decisions at the state level to try to um, encourage or maintain sustainability of our various stocks of fish. Um, and as far as kind of how my research will help that, um, a lot of what my research is trying to do is trying to quantify things that we somewhat assume already, right? So we, we assume that fish like structure. So we would assume that an oyster lease, right, which is an area where someone is growing oysters in bags or um, in bottom cages. So we add a lot of structure to the water. We assume that fish would like that area, right? And so, but what we're trying to do is to scientifically understand and provide an actual number of like uh, you know, what value that oyster lease is actually providing, you know, are fish returning into it daily? Are they leaving it and then coming back in a month? Um, are they spending only the night on it and then foraging along the marsh edge? So trying to understand, you know, when we have more aquaculture in our state, what's actually happening um, in terms of the habitat that we have. And kind of the same thing for the inlet, right? If you talk to any fisherman, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're going to say that inlets are important because we know that species of fish move through inlets, right? It's well known. It's been known by fishermen for thousands of years, right? But they're really hard areas to sample because they're super high current and they're super high traffic. And so ideally what our, our ARIS research, right, which is that expensive sonar, is going to be able to do is to actually help us understand how many fish are using the inlet and kind of understand what different predator and prey species, how they use it differently. And kind of all of that ideally goes into helping managers make more educated decisions about what areas need to be protected more. Should we, you know, start designated inlets as like, you know, restricted zones for fishing? I don't know if that's a good idea or not, right? Or should we, you know, encourage oyster leases? Maybe they're providing more ecosystem services than we think they do, right? And so, a lot of what our lab is doing is really just trying to provide more information about some of the habitat and value that we already know is there, but actually assign numbers to those things. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty important um, job that you're trying to figure out. And um, also, I guess what you alluded here, that there is knowledge around by people who have been using these areas and been interacting with it that we consider um, local or traditional ecological knowledge and kind of combining that with scientific knowledge to produce like the best results is definitely super valuable. And um, I guess because we have been talking about lo local and traditional ecological knowledge, 
um, what would be things that people have told you, like when you were out there um, sampling or setting up uh, things? Have you interacted with any fishermen and have they been telling you things about like environmental change they've, that they've witnessed? Um, and yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, most of my fieldwork thus far has been kind of around that first project, which was the, the acoustic tagging on the oyster leases. Um, and so, you know, interacting with lease owners, um, as far as the, the fish we're studying, which is the sheep's head, as far as that goes, you know, it, it, they're very well known to, um, to stay around structure, right? And so that was pretty interesting to, you know, obviously I'm a fisherman myself, I'm familiar with that knowledge, but to then see that knowledge reinforced by the data we saw was pretty cool. Um, another thing that kind of we talked about a little bit um, with the lease owner that I worked with, a guy named Jay Styron in Cedar Island Bay, um, we talked briefly about like hurricane intensity. Um, I set my uh, traps there through hurricane or tropical storm Messias. Uh, I think it's last year, maybe two years ago, but I met with him out there and he was talking about how he's had to change the way that he uses oyster gear to kind of account for some of these really, really rough storms, um, especially Hurricane Dorian, because um, in the Cedar Island Bay area, there was a huge flush of water from Pamlico Sound that came back down. So it's definitely, you know, that kind of increased intensity is something that I think um, he's kind of acknowledged, um, but it's not super surprising. He actually is a kind of in with the scientific community as well. He um, uh, works as the research vessel captain at UNCW. So he gets a lot of uh, scientific input, I'm sure too. But it was interesting to see because, um, I don't know, it's cool to see people acknowledging changes uh, just from like a purely anecdotal standpoint. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so um, I guess in our first episode, we have been talking about interdisciplinary research. And so I know that the work is not generally interdisciplinary what you're doing right now, but I guess what is your take on interdisciplinary research and how much has that influenced your way, um, your career and your research? Yeah, I think my current research, I would, I think calling it interdisciplinary would be a little bit of a stretch. Um, I, I think a lot of what I'm doing, it would be considered pretty traditional Fisher's ecology, maybe a slightly higher tech air quotes, higher tech approach than other people have taken. Um, but I think the interdisciplinary aspect of science, especially the push that we've had for it recently, is pretty interesting to me. And I think it can really be a benefit to get these different perspectives um, on, on individual problems. Because, you know, even in talking to you about some of the stuff I've done, Kira, you have a very different perspective than I do. And it's cool to kind of hear the direction that you're coming from, and it helps to give me ideas as well. Um, and one thing I will say is that my PhD program is um, like exactly called an interdisciplinary program. And so I work a lot with uh, other people in the biomedicine program and in the chemistry program. Um, you know, obviously they understand their subject matter way more in depth than I do, but it is really cool uh, to be in a program where I hear so many different things at the seminars and there's such a wide range of science going on. Um, I think it really helps you to keep a, an open mind and not get too narrowed in on exactly only ever thinking about fisheries ecology, which I think as PhD students and later scientists, it's really easy to get so specialized in one thing. So it's a nice way to resist that almost. No, that's, that's a good, good point. I, I like that. 
Um, and we, yeah, we've been all discovering that kind of everyone who works in this kind of area, that this really helps and keeping and keeping you like on the ground too, and not getting too far down the rabbit hole. Um, so I guess for, for any um, prospective students or researchers, um, young career researchers who would be interested in doing that kind of research, what you just, just described, what would be suggestions? Like how could somebody who's interested in doing that type of fisheries research, uh, how could they start? Um, I mean, I think a big part of, of research is who your, your PI is, which is your principal investigator, um, basically the person who mentors you through your graduate school. So I think finding a good PI is super important, um, and that would involve emailing them and contacting them and hopefully, you know, just understanding the work that they're doing and making sure that your interests align, because otherwise you're not going to find the joy that you should hopefully be finding in, in the work you do. I mean, it's not always, you know sunshine and roses and flowers every day but you know i like my job a lot and it's really fun and i hope that other prospective people would would also feel that way um then also just to not uh i i think one very important thing is you know when i describe my work to other people i always describe the field work and the being out there and you know setting up these uh you know tagging fish or acoustic receivers or you know, using the sonar out in the field on the boat. And that's a really cool part of research and what we do. But there's also a ton of our research that involves sitting behind a desk, programming, you know, trying to work our way through these huge data sets. The one, the acoustic tagging I did uh, gave me back a data set with like 500,000 different locations for the fish, right? And so, you know, when you're trying to get through all that, it's really, it's a ton, right? And there's a lot of writing to do too. And so I think it's important for any perspective students, whether you're coming into fisheries ecology or any degree, to understand that, you know, there's a lot of other work that goes into it aside from the, the glamorous stuff. Um, so I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. No, totally. Um, keeping that in perspective. And you definitely also have to be kind of you wanting to read a lot in this career <laughs> yes. and not just, yeah, read, write and sit in front of a computer is definitely a big, big part of this work, but also um, you probably get to sit on the marsh um, of the Outer Banks, which we do, and so that's not too bad, actually. There's pluses for um, sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> and so for our listeners that would be interested in supporting the North Carolina fisheries, is there anything that they could do um, that you can just like think of? Um, so that our fisheries continue to thrive. Yeah, I mean, I think the one you see the bumper stickers all over the bumper stickers, excuse me, all over the place of like you know buying local seafood, and, and obviously that's a great thing to do. Um, but aside from that, I think it's it's really important to be cognizant of who you are electing into office at the local and state level because they do have whether it's not whether it's direct sway or not, they do have some push into kind of what direction regulation goes. Um, and kind of in the same direction as that, um, you can always look into the North Carolina Marine Fisheries Commission meetings, which is where a lot of the big kind of high level decisions for management get made or are discussed. Um, and they have public comment at those meetings. And so if you're ever, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're ever feeling really passionate one way or the other, or you think that, you know, something really wrong is happening and you want to have your voice heard. Um, the public comment at those meetings is a, is a great place to share your thoughts um, and, you know, 
they have to listen. So, oh, that's yeah. Thanks. Um, mobilization definitely is where change gets made. <coughs> and I guess the last thing, um, if people would want to contact you or find you somewhere, where could they do that? Um, I think the best thing to do would probably be to email me, and I don't know, maybe you can put my email somewhere in text, Kira, but of also course. it's uh, mcmains a 20 at students.ecu.edu, and unfortunately I am not cool enough to have Twitter, so you'll just have to email me. Sorry. <laughs> that, that's perfectly fine. Thank you so much, Andrew, for sitting down with us and talking about your research, and yeah, we'll hope everything goes well with your future projects, and we're excited to see the results of that. Thanks, Thanks again. For, Thanks for having me. And that does it for another episode of All Swell. Thank you guys for listening to us. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us through social media. You can find us on Instagram at at ECUTCS and Twitter at at Coastal at. The next episode will again come from Duke University and is on oceanic plastic pollution and solutions. That sounds super interesting. So tune in for that one. And thanks to the Coastal Society for supporting the show and to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting us. And to Senchine or Alexei Levchenko for our intro and outro music. Thank you again for listening. And remember, where, where there's, there's a will, there's a wave. wave.